Hello, I'm Noah, your host, and this is The In-Between Project. All right, hello everyone, welcome back. Today I would like to introduce a friend of mine, Lena is a friend I met in college, um, studying at Occidental College in Los Angeles. She is majoring in critical theory and social justice, but is also on the pre-med track. She lives in Los Angeles and actually grew up in Syria. In the future, she is interested in working in the public health sector in the Middle East. I wanted to invite Lena on today to talk about her experience in betweenness and how her identity informs her moving through the world. So, hello, Lena. Thank you so much for coming. Hello. How are you doing? Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Um, and I thank you for opening up the space that validates experience. So, I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. I really like that you just said that about a space to validate experience. Um, I think that's, you know, definitely the goal here and really looking forward to hearing your story today. So, if I could just start and ask you, this is kind of like, the overall question I've been asking for this podcast, like frames this podcast. The question is, what does home mean to you? Growing up, did you have many homes? Did home feel like a place, a people, a country, a language, even a self? So yeah, however you'd like to answer that. That sounds like such a simple question, but it's very um, intense. So just to give a little background of how I see home, like the home that I see was the one that I grew up in, in Damascus with my family. Um, it was like a small, modest home. Everything, like almost the majority of the homes in the city were apartments. So it was there and our home was very like, I don't know how to describe it. It was a mash of everything. Like there would be like, the sitting room and like a little tykes playhouse and it was just so comfortable to be there so when we left in 2012 I was just uprooted from home and anywhere I have been since then has not felt home so for me home and like currently is my family wherever they are is my home right so it's become like more the feeling with the people who came from your homeland who have that shared memory or experience of your home back in Syria. Wow. Yeah, that's... Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. Did that ever... Did it ever feel like that uprooting, Mm -hmm. that change, that feeling from coming from a home Mm -hmm. to now never really feeling at home in a place but more in, in your family? Yeah. Did that have affect your sense of self or like when you did arrive to, I'm assuming you mm-hmm. came to California Yeah. after? So when you arrived to California, did you go straight into school? Did you have to like take on a new sense of self to try to fit in or how did, how did, yeah, does that, yes. I just, I'm just curious. Yeah. I think this is something I realized this year about home. It's like home isn't a physical thing and the one thing that I like another reason that I chose to stay close to home, quote unquote, in college is to be close to my family because that was like the one constant I have had throughout my life. And that's the biggest blessing. And like one thing that sticks with me is 
it's like you could say I lost everything, but that's a lie because like my family's still here, and that's that's how I carry home. That's how I carry my perspective. So to the story of how we moved here, um, in 2012, we used to go to like my entire childhood. My mom was very like very strict on us getting an education to go to college, and the plan was to get edu- to get the like higher education in the United States. So we went to an international school called Shui Fats, and it was a harder system to get back into. So when we left Syria, like, our plan was to leave for, like, three months till things calm down and then go back. So we literally packed for three months. My parents told me, like, a week before, and we leave to the U.S., but we go to Arizona because there's a sister school um, in Arizona, and it was a charter school. And when I arrived there, it was, like, a total different world. Like, they talked about things that I have never known was there in real life, if that makes any sense. So it was like, Mm -hmm. at that point in time, I just kind of sat back and watched with my eyes wide open and tried not to say much to not get attention. So the school year ended in Arizona. We come out to California to stay with my mom's family in the summer. And towards the end of the summer, my parents are like, okay, we're not going back. And that was the biggest shock for me. Like, I was in denial, like, complete denial and just crying because I didn't understand why. Um, so when I go to the public school in California, I remember the first day I go in and it's like, I don't want to go through what happened in Arizona with me. Like, it was just not, it didn't feel like school. It just felt like a complete different world. It's like he took me from Earth and threw me on Mars. And I just sat there and watched because I didn't know what else to do. So there's a specific instance I remember where like I was just fighting my mom about going in and I just broke down and I just, I sat on her lap like outside the bench of school and was just crying for like an hour or two because there's just nothing else I could do. But after like a couple years, like two, three years, I learned how to shift and how to fit in, quote unquote, to the system. And that wasn't the healthiest thing because I had to like deny parts of my identity to like fit in as like cool as possible without me standing out, you know? Right. So that was, that's kind of the big story. Yeah. I, I really want you to know, like, I, I appreciate you going back through all those details because it's painful, especially when you're young. I mean, how old were you when this is all happening, when you were, when you went to Arizona and then when you went and started school again? So that was seventh grade. And okay. Yeah. It was like on the younger side. It was just confusing. But yeah. like with all that being said, that gave me way to opportunities and to meet people like you, to meet people like this one teacher I had in high school who like showed me what opportunities exist out there and like literally pushed me to go get it. And it's been a like that part's a blessing. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with like the blessing that comes on the flip side is like you're not alone in that, even though someone might not have your exact experience or the same exact timeline of where what you went through you can use your your experience and your history and 
and to connect with other people, right? And to share your story. I mean, that's that takes so much strength to to like that moment that you had to, okay, kind of like I have to get with the program, right? Or like kind of just deny parts of myself to fit in. That takes an incredible amount of strength and like shifting selves. And that's incredible that you were, that you had to go through that and that you came out on either side. And um, I guess, has it been a journey to, to coming back to maybe the parts of yourself that you put away or that you let's say, denied at a certain point? Has it been a journey to kind of reclaiming or kind of rediscovering or just reconnecting in your public presentation of yourself, not just in your family, of like who you are and where you come from? Um, That's actually a journey I'm currently on right now, which is like not reclaiming parts of myself that I have denied, but like tapping back into it and holding it instead of an embarrassment, holding it with honor because who I am and who you are and who our ancestors are, those are powerful and there's no reason to deny them. And I think society, especially like we talk about the melting pot in the U S where like we're all put into it to create kind of this, this mix of everything that is like almost the same, but it's like, we're not the same, you know, like there's like a bark of cinnamon, you can't break that down. I don't know how to explain that, but it's going to stay a bark of cinnamon and you can't break it down. So back to reclaiming my identity. Um, so one thing in high school that I like totally denied, like I even stopped speaking Arabic at all, like at home. Um, I like also denied that I was Muslim, like publicly kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it's like I was denying them not out of something that I didn't want to hold, but out of I don't want other people to know this about me. So going to college and finding people there who are of similar backgrounds or have had this struggle but with different parts of their identity and being able to talk about it has been very empowering to the point where I'm like relearning my language and like holding it with more honor. And, like, practicing it out of love instead of out of, like, force. And the same with, like, religion. It's, like, I'm reading into it and I'm holding it. Like, maybe I'm not as, like, practicing, but it's, like, I know about it. It's part of me. It's part of my family. It's part of my lineage, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. And I know it's a journey and it takes time. And that's incredible that you're on that journey right now. Thank you. Um, Especially with language, which if you've grown up speaking one language and then suddenly have to shift gears and adapt and take on a whole new language. Yeah. And then if you, if you, like you said, you were embarrassed to speak Arabic or, you know, you kept that part of yourself secret. I know that language informs like how we see the world or like how we experience the world in a strange way. Like in different languages, there are different like grammar structures or intonations, connotations. Um, which totally informs like our personality and like how we express ourselves. Did you feel like stopping speaking Arabic, I guess, as much impacted just how you felt you communicated or expressed yourself? Yes. So actually that's like, looking back on it, I stopped speaking it completely. And the one thing is like, I, I used to, I remember as a child, like I'd express myself as clear and as articulately as I wanted to. And that had to do with what I was speaking, what I knew, and I was speaking 
what, like, like how I used to, like, it's exactly what I needed to express myself, which was, like, the Arabic language, the slang, the references, and when I erased that part and I, like, stuck to English, my accent, like, my Arabic accent kind of went away, which was what I wanted to avoid, like, that extra attention, but also, I began, like, I began not expressing myself how I needed and being more passive and using very basic words. And I always felt like below the standards of my peers in being able to express myself, to write, to kind of communicate in general. But I always held that to my fault. But looking back at it, it's not my fault. It was not my fault. It's like not something in my control um, because it's not what I grew up using to express myself so when I tapped back into the Arabic language I was also like I was able to express myself I was able to like make references with people who knew kind of what I was talking about and that felt so empowering to be like you know what I'm talking about and like articulate myself a little better and they get how I'm feeling a little more and another thing that came with it was I was able to connect back with family that I have lost touch with it's and it's been empowering. Like my grandma, I, I like refused. I felt so bad. I'd refuse to speak to her in Arabic or just like refuse to speak to her, you know, mm. in that language or in that setting or like accommodate her. And I guess that was like my high school part where I was like, I'm not this. I'm this other thing that's absolutely not real. So when I started speaking Arabic to her and it's like, all this like love comes back, like bustling in. And it's like, I'm so excited to speak to her now because I can like articulate myself better and she's going to get me and then she's going to do the same thing in reverse. And it's, it's way more awesome. Yeah. That's a wonderful feeling. And like, I, I can just imagine like that feeling of kind of reconnection and joy and, you know, it's like a new chapter. Yeah. And like, I, I wanted to touch on your point because it was, I mean, I don't know if this is what you're referring to, but when you said it's not my fault, basically, you know, I at all don't think it's your fault that like you went through that moment or that period where you were in denial of who you were or you were just trying to fit in and get by and survive basically in a country that, like you said, we we talk of this melting pot, but really it's a country that is very harsh towards any noted difference in, in another person, right? Like the second someone becomes an other mm -hmm. or there's any way to like differentiate them, that's that's something that makes you vulnerable, which it shouldn't. But that's how a white supremacist culture with mm -hmm. white supremacist values of, of keeping everyone the same um, doesn't really allow for difference or nuance or, you know, I think we're striving towards that direction to really become a place that embraces difference and like not trying to make everyone the same but yeah I mean even especially that age like being a teenager and like just the the pressure to assimilate to fit in I mean already there's a pressure to, to fit in right and to kind of not be authentic but then on top of that like you throw on top of like coming from somewhere where you have a completely different understanding of your culture or your homeland and it's also, Islamophobia in, in the U.S. Oh, my God. <laughs> we can get into that. Yeah. Oh, my God. So, actually, like, a reason, a whole, a big chunk of why I avoided, like, my Muslim identity was because the first thing 
I was called when I got to school and they're like, where are you from? Syria. Where is that? Middle East. So are you Muslim? So you're a terrorist? And I was like, okay, I'm just going to cut this down. So that was a big part of it. Um, And the thing is, like, it runs so deep into institutions. I'm going to share the story that happened to me that this was at the end of high school. So this is kind of what fueled my return to explore Islam from like a positive perspective because I was like harboring all these negative ideas about Islam. I was like Islamophobic myself, you know? I internalized Islamophobia, right? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Like I internalized it and it's not something that happens consciously, but it's when you're constantly bombarded with false realities that your surrounding believes. It's inherent that's just going to like seep into your pores a little bit and makes you question it. So the story goes, I'm at the end of like in towards the end of high school, I went to a privileged public high school. And with that came this, this inherent, not inherent, but this racism that was harbored in a good amount of our students to the point where unfortunately like and it's a good thing we didn't get called out on the news about our racism so in response our high school held an anti-racist assembly and i'm thinking finally like we're doing something about this so this assembly runs seven periods and like the entire high school goes during their english class so i go during my first period and the assembly's going okay like it's kind of basic information but it's like, it needs to get out there, but also needs to be a little stronger. And then towards the end, there's this video clip of this girl. And she's like, I've experienced racism. I was called a terrorist. But like, I was telling them, I'm not Muslim. And I was like, what? Wait, like, repeat that. And so this video is playing. And at the end, I'm like, I'm like, wait, what does she mean by that? So I'm all like kind of frustrated and I go down and I try to speak to the principal who's running this. Someone literally blocks me, blocks my way. I'm like, I just need to get through to him because this is going to be playing six more times throughout the day. Um, So I'm blocked and this fire just kind of lit in me and then I leave. I'm like, okay. Next thing I do, I'm going to call, like, the school district. So I, like, skip my class because I can't have this running. And it was the first time no. I kind of, like, identify with my identity. And I'm, like, I can't have people seeing this and thinking it's okay. So I call and I'm, like, hello. Like, this is running. How is this happening? And they kind of, like, put me on hold. And by the end of the day, they get back to me. And they're, like, oh, we're sorry it ran. But it just goes to show how inherent Islamophobia is in like institutional structures, including public schools in Los Angeles, where we think of as like one of the most diverse cities. But yeah, it's real. And that's also like exactly why I didn't tell people I was like Muslim or just tried to avoid the question. But after that, I was like, I, I'm not going to be implicit in this. And right. Yeah. Oh so my God. I can't believe that was. Yeah. <laughs> I can't believe they even ran that like once. Oh, like, yeah. Yeah. I, I even know like, I don't know, from my experiences of, I mean, where I live in Miami, we actually don't have a big Muslim community or 
we have a lot of immigrants, but a lot from like South America or, you know, the Caribbean or, or Cuba. Um, but they're even here, you know, we have Islamophobia. And I think what I remember, like from just hearing, you know, in high school comments in passing or just like kind of the attitude was like anyone from the Middle East is kind of like clumped in as, as like one collective people with all of these horribly racist stereotypes. But like, I don't know, in, in educating myself and meeting different people from different countries and like understanding all the differences between countries and like all the differences between, I don't know, like what's even practiced, like the different levels of, of how people practice Islam and like, and like, oh my God, like the differences in Arabic, like Arabic from every country is so different, like from Morocco to Syria to Jordan to Iran, like it's, I mean, Iran, even there's Farsi, you know, like, especially with the history here in the US, it's very easy to just kind of put all of these peoples or all of these cultures into one negative, horrible stereotype and perpetuate that. Thank you for touching on that. That's very important to recognize. Yeah, because I mean, I understand as a survival like kind of tactic why you like hid parts of yourself you know yeah yeah so I mean I wanted I also wanted to ask like moving forward like in terms of like what you were what you were interested in you know what you're interested in studying or potentially working in fields like how is your experience with this kind of in-between identity how is it informed what you think about when you think about what makes you excited for the future what you're passionate about um, that's a fun question. Um, so one thing I think I've carried when I moved here and I was trying to understand was like, why did I make it up? And because like constantly on our Facebook feed and like my dad would be very adamant on showing us like, like why it's okay we left. And then it's like what other people are still enduring to this day. And it's like, it's really real stuff where it's like, Aside from, like, the injuries and the death and the destruction, there's people, like, eating out of, and it's children that are, like, eating out of trash cans. And it's, like, even when they immigrate to neighboring countries, they're treated horribly. One thing I've, like, questioned is, like, why, why, why me? Like, why did I make it out, you know? And it's, like, it's selfish, but it's also... It's just this really weird feeling. So I've always wanted to be involved in kind of redistributing resources, not just where I'm at locally, but on a national level. And one thing I realized is I was constantly fun attempting to fundraise to get like medical kits or to like supply a medical mission. Or at one point I was like, why do we have to add, like kind of beg people for money? You know, I was like, I just want to be able to do, be somewhere in my life where I'd be able to like redistribute this resource, even if it's like, like the way I see it is I'm thankfully getting access to education and I, that's a huge privilege. And another privilege is being able to be in the United States where like their medical system is like held at a very high standard. And they have all these technologies. So I was like, I'm going to take advantage of this and just redistribute the knowledge and the resources. So that's how I see medicine for me. Um, personally, don't enjoy it that much. But 
I know it like, like this is something the world needs to have redistributed because it's concentrated, like all this education, I feel like it's concentrated in the U.S., but at the same time, the U.S. has horrible like healthcare access and it's just so messed up to even think about that. I'm like, I don't want to work within the system. So I'm going to take what I can get access to and just redistribute it as honest as that sounds. That's where I see my future. Yeah, that's amazing. Like for you to recognize like how under-resourced or how the U.S. or countries in the West are the ones that have all the resources and all the, the access to healthcare technology and education and, and it, it's privatized in a way. Yeah, if you can be the one to make that bridge to redistribute back to Syria or back to the, anywhere in the Middle East, or that that that's amazing. I mean, I was underwhelmed also with like how the U.S. responded to the refugee crisis, and that was something that really broke my heart. And like compared to other countries, like that were taking in way more refugees and also providing them a way to like establish their lives, you know, and like access to, you know, healthcare and English lessons and getting a job. And and I, I still know that it, it often, a lot of times, things fell through the cracks in other countries. But in the U.S., there's like basically no no help at all for the the refugees that were placed in asylum here. So yeah, I mean, the world needs people like you, you know. And people like you to highlight the real narrative that's going on and touching in on such humane aspects like this one story I will never forget so like I went through all this stuff in high school and then <clears throat> I get to college and I meet you on what like the first or second week yeah and you're like <laughs> oh I have this video and I was wondering if you'd be able to help translate and that video was about the Syrian refugees that relocated to Florida yes yes so the power in that interaction I remember just you like literally lit up a light of hope back in my heart after it was like ignited. So I thank you for that. You don't know what that did for me. And that did like heaps of love and like reigniting hope. So thank you, Mel. Oh, Lena, it was a blessing to meet you. It really was. I mean, to even like, like, I don't know, a friend told me about you and they're like, yeah, Lena. And, and she, you know, she's from Syria. And like, I was like, whoa, like, just the fact that our paths crossed. And yeah, I I really hope like that's what any platform I have and like let other people kind of take the wheel. But if I can just like give the platform, you know, like I just hope to make that bridge, you know, between me and other people, but also like what's put out there basically. So um, just like having your help on that and, and you coming on today like for this, like it's just been amazing. Um, so yeah, I mean... To touch back on sense of self and kind of the journey you're on right now in, in terms of reconnecting or tapping into maybe the self you were when you were a child, you know, and bringing that back into your identity. Does that feel like you have multiple selves you're juggling or does it feel like this is different facets of myself? Okay, so that's a very good question that I like contemplated very heavily this past year because parts of myself aren't accepted depending on which space I walk into. So I have to be pick and choose. And I feel like that really goes to show with like social media, which I've had like my personal struggles with and like, who do I want to connect to? Who do I want to show? How much do I want to show? 
So I feel like social media for me was the perfect place of like that funny in between. But then I realized I'm like, I'm everything and I don't have to hide it. If anything, I could just like be a different facet of myself somewhere. But if another facet comes up, that's not a problem. It's still part of me. So I think accepting that has been a journey and it's been peaceful to accept it. Yeah, that's that's so beautiful you say that, um, that you're every facet, yeah. you're every part. Yeah, because it's, I think, you know, especially in growing up, like we want to figure out where we belong, yes. right? You know, and like, where do we fit? Or like, mm-hmm. what box can I check off when I say this is me? You know, and would you say you feel like you have existed in between or, like, do you identify with that? Oh, yeah? absolutely. Like, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like with people, no matter, like, their experience, if they have that feeling, it can be scary at times to feel like you don't know who you are. You have all these pieces you're juggling. Like, I came from here. I speak this language, but I also speak this language. I also live here, but I also lived there. Who am I? You know, where do I actually belong? Do I belong, like, back where I originally came from? You know, or how do I make sense of myself now in this new space, in this new culture, in this new land? And I think the conclusion is like, no, it's every piece is you, you know, like it's all you. And yeah, I think that's very beautiful that you've come to know that about yourself. It's like, not even that, it's like your ethics and like your morals and your habits and what's normalized here is like, because I remember when I came here, like, like a classmate asked me for a hug and it was like a guy back in like my childhood, like. It was like all, like I used to love all my friends, but we never even hugged, if that makes any sense. yeah. And I was like, whoa, like that's very weird. So it's little things like that. But I also wanted to share this with you because once I heard it, it was very, very helpful. So in Islam, there's like the 99 names of God. And it's like, this just goes to show you how I view Islam. And it's like, it's more of a spiritual like connection between me and like the universe rather than like a playbook that has all these rules. But so there's these 99 names and each one like talks about something. It's like the all giving, but the forgiving, the one who holds judgment. So supposedly the higher power holds all 99 to full capacity, but humans hold them at different percentages for each identity or each characteristic. So that's been useful to like, understand that like I do have different facets and that's very normal right yeah you can hold a different levels you know or like a different space the different spaces you're in you can kind of tap into the different sides and the I really like that metaphor you just provided that helped me yeah I will use that too I mean I definitely want to study more and learn more about Islam and um, I appreciate you sharing that does it feel like because now you you have you know how to do the art of like you said like in different spaces you're in like showing up a different side of Lena. I mean, does it feel like you have a an extra source of knowledge almost about like how to be in different places? What it requires around different people to basically be, which might not be obvious to the people in those spaces, but because you you navigate and you like can shift and switch, does it feel like you have a knowledge or some sort of extra sense? Yes. So actually, I was talking to, I have a friend who moved around the same time and we reconnected. We're talking about this. You can throw us into any space with anyone and we will somehow adapt. And that has to do with like, we were like, we had to adapt to survive. So it's kind of secondhand nature to us. It might not be 
the best thing or the thing that we want the most, but it's like, we'll be able to do that. Like, you know, no problem because like we've been put through adversity to survive and have to adapt. Yeah. It's, um, it's definitely like not like I wouldn't wish it on anyone, you know, like having to go through the experience and in a way, like I understand like what you're saying of like, now you're able to do it. But I also get what you mean. Like when you say, it's not like you want to keep shifting selves. It's like you had to literally learn that to survive. Also to touch on this, cause I just, this just came to mind. Like our world is so more connected than ever between all these different cultures and religions and languages. It's like, is this a new struggle that we're having to deal with as like immigrants or as like children of immigrants where we're being, it's what you said, this in-between state. This is, is this happening more often because we're more connected and like flight and travel is easier or has it existed for a while? Just not at this like level. Right. Yeah. That's such a good point you bring up. This is something I have thought about like forever and I think about very deeply. Like why is it at this point right now in our world? Does it feel like because of maybe globalization and like this global economy operating under capitalism and like kind of imposing it everywhere and then like now immigration and like people like visiting a lot of other countries. I feel like there's – okay, I'm going to – I'm just going to like go on a tangent but – Within that, I feel like there's different hierarchies of people who are maybe in air quotes like global citizens who can travel and it's something that's seen as leisure versus not really having a choice, being an immigrant or or fleeing as a refugee. Um, but I feel like there's a mix of both happening. And so, yeah, I see what you're saying about like the world. Like it just seems to be like there's all this cultural connection and is this giving rise to this experience of in-betweenness like that's going to become more and more common and I mean, what do you think? I mean, I'll pose the question. Do you think if more people in the in-between, if they are more common, if this experience becomes more common, will it no longer be like this kind of marginalized experience? That is such a interesting question because like out one hand, there's like this globalization that's creating this. I honestly think this in-between state is a blessing. Like even think about like the cracks in between the floor. You know, like the ones you see on gravel, sometimes you see like beautiful plants growing out of there, you know, or flowers. And it's like you're kind of forced to create something that is your own and no one else harbors. So like that's the beauty of it. But at the same time, it creates like this constant questioning and maybe we reflect on life at a deeper state. (laughs) It's like a very intense question. It is. And I don't think there's an answer. Yeah. So I just, (laughs) I threw you out in the deep end with no answer there. That's the best part. There's no answer. You can create anything and it can be anything. Yeah. It's, you're, you're so right about like this kind of conflict or like almost contradiction because I feel like if there's more people with the in-between kind of experience, then it means like, you know, all these defining categories such as nationality or race or culture and ethnicity don't have as much power and meaning, right? It kind of gets like if everything's starting to kind of get mixed or a lot of people who can identify in an in-between, you know, with both and with with neither of whatever space, country, culture they belong to. Um, but then like on the other hand, does that mean it's just going to all get like washed down or like it's going to get watered down and 
And I, I really hear you when you say like there's like this effort to kind of standardize, even though we're now becoming a world that seems very connected and cross-cultural, yet everyone's expected to speak English, for example. If you want to get a job in the world, it doesn't really matter where you're from, like you're expected to learn English. You know, if you want to, you know, participate in the global economy or exchange and like that's like yeah i guess we're connecting culturally but we're also imposing like the u.s and i guess the uk but like for example to impose english like why is that the the language of that's become like the common language um i think about that too yeah i had like two things i wanted to touch on because you brought them up really rapidly and it's like the first one is i think this is more specific to the middle east and it's like, if you look back a hundred years ago, there wasn't this idea of nationalism or ethnicity, but there were, there were way more languages, religions, ethnicities that were categorized, um, that existed. But let's say supposedly not on paper, they just existed, like, and they were just free to be. But then, like, when the French and the English came, and made their little mandates. Then they started enforcing the standardization, and that was with, like, Arabic, making that the language of the land, like, making it standardized. And by doing that, they, like, erased other languages. They erased and made it not, like, they normalized Islam as, like, the dominant, and then everything else, they, like, quoted it a minority. And... Like, so much was erased there, so I just wanted to touch on, like, the erasure in the standardization, and that happens, like, that's happened, that happened in the Middle East, like, less than a 100 years ago, and, like, this erasure came from standardization, but also to, like, look at how deeply embedded this idea of, like, you have to learn English is, it's, like, when I went back, I had baby cousins who were, like, three, five, and seven, who did not speak Arabic in the Middle East. Like, to me, that was the most mind-blowing thing because when I was younger, it was like, like, okay, we spoke English, but, like, me and my friends all had, like, broken accents. But, like, we expressed ourselves in, like, in Arabic, but at the same time, we watched, like, our Arabic shows, but they view Arabic as, like, ugh, like, you know, like, kind of boring. The cool thing is English right now. So it's, like, it's so embedded to the point where they're in a country that speaks a different language, but they're holding on to English because they think it's the cool thing to do. And that was like the most heartbreaking thing for me. But at the same time, like I want to acknowledge like my standpoint where I'm coming in from like privileged America and like kind of quote unquote, like being an observer, which I don't like, but I did want to recognize that. So I don't know what struggles they do go through, but it's just like that level of you should speak English has been so embedded into different cultures. Yeah. Wow. Um, I wanted to touch on two points that <laughs> that what from what you were saying now that's made me think. Well, one, I did not at all know that it was the legacy of colonialism um, that brought about the standardization in the Middle East with language and with religion. Um, I really thank you for sharing that because I didn't know that at all. And, um, and then to the point I wanted to ask you, like, you did share like what it was like to go back, um, 
you know, and to see your cousins speaking English and kind of like the attachment to like this, a language that's not, that's not even what's spoken in the country, but it's like now it's expected, you know, like that's, that just shows like how far reaching like (laughs) the kind of the, I guess we can use the words like globalization or or westernized. I I guess I wanted to, I did want to ask, how did it feel going back to visit your cousins? You as yourself, like now having lived in the U.S., did it feel different or did you feel like you connect the same or? There was this connection that I was kind of hesitant about at first, but like, it's like the spark lit up. Also, like one thing I want to note, it's my cousins. Um, I didn't go back to Syria, but I went to like Dubai and Lebanon and like Jordan in the Middle East because like the people I can access have fled, if that makes any sense. Right. So it's like kind of also meeting them in, like they're in between. It was so interesting to find like, to meet them again for the new person that they are, but also to like be able to reflect on their memories and like our mutuality, if that makes sense, growing up that was there. And like the funny thing is like I have my cousin who's my age and like both of us like, I, like, in high school, I made sure not, like, this is my dilemma of social media. Like, I didn't add anyone from, like, quote-unquote, like, my childhood or, like, my previous life. Because, like, they wouldn't approve of Valina I am right now. Like, that's what I thought. But then, so basically, like, I, like, met her again. And, like, she was, we were both, like, we started our conversation and we were both kind of hesitant. And then, like. When stuff started unfolding, it was so powerful. It was like, oh, my God, I was scared to tell you this. Mm -hmm. And, like, one of the things that we both had in common, which is kind of funny, it's like we both had, like, secret boyfriends, if that makes any sense, that we were so afraid to tell each other about. But, like, the fact that we both went through this, like, almost at the same time, but also didn't tell anyone, but were able to connect back at it on, like, two different continents. It was so powerful. and. It's just like that's when I learned to accept kind of almost all facets of myself. You know, we're all human and it's like there's nothing to be scared about except disapproval and that's going to happen no matter what. Right, and I think it's not, you know, talked about enough or like shown enough like how much more we have in common than not. And especially like, you know, even with the family member that you felt like at first, oh my God, like I can't share this. It turned out that you could and, like, you found a common ground and that's beautiful. And then especially, like, I I could see, like, how that experience also speaks to, like, wow, yes, like, I feel a sense of belonging with this person but in my family and where my family comes from and the shared memories and histories we have, you know, and that's that's an important part too, like, connecting to your roots in a sense, you know, like, thank you for sharing that. I mean, I, I, I just love to hear you speak about this and – You've taught me so much as we've as we've been sitting here. I feel like I'm just your student right now. Thank you. I feel like you're a student. I feel like I feel like we're both each other's students that are like building this like big Lego. Yeah. Lego. <laughs> you know, this big Lego that's going to like disrupt the conversation. Yeah. Or the discourse. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know why Lego No, so I much. get that, because it's like different like pieces, like building blocks. Because 
yeah, like I'll say one thing and then like the way you respond, it's like, oh, I didn't think about it that way. Like, wow, like thank you for sharing that because, you know, that that opens my mind now to, to, I guess, expand a little bit more um, when I say, when I list these terms or these things I'm talking about. So, yeah, I mean, I I want to thank you so much for coming on today. Like this, this has been one of my favorite conversations. And yeah, I, I really look forward to just working with you and to continue learning from you because you've really said everything so beautifully and, and just touched on so many points and also shared painful, traumatic experiences. And, you know, my heart goes out to your family and to, you know, that time in your life and the, and the family members who've also, you know, had to, had to leave their country. Thank you for being so loving. There's no other way to say that. But I appreciate you and I appreciate this conversation. The In-Between Project is recorded in Miami, Florida and Santiago, Chile. Produced and edited by me, Noah Richard. Music is composed by Diego Richard. The In-Between Project is a podcast made for the nonprofit organization Humanity in Action. Check out more from The In-Between Project at our Instagram, link down below in the transcript, or send me a message to my Instagram or email, also linked down below.